Hey everybody, I'm Meryl, and I'm here with our producer, Sam, and today we're going to be doing something a little different. We decided to make this episode more of a conversation. We're going to actually try talking to each other. So, here it goes. Today, we talk about autism. This, 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 this is Carry the One, Carry the One Radio, the science podcast, igniting scientific curiosity, the University of California, California, San Francisco. All right, so I want to just check the levels. So uh, what we usually do is we ask you what you had for breakfast this morning. So just take me through your breakfast. Uh, if this is your breakfast. <laughs> this is my breakfast. <laughs> A Monster Energy Ultra Sunshine. Beautiful. All right. So the levels look Delicious good. and nutritious. <laughs> wow. So why don't we just start with what's your name and title? I'm Matthew State. I'm the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at UCSF. I'm also the Open Door Family Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry. Uh, so you and Ryan interviewed Matt in his office. Yeah. What was it like? His office? Yeah, like huge and empty, or was it like Dumbledore's office? <laughs> yeah, it was nice. He actually had a mini fridge completely stocked with monster energy drinks. <laughs> yeah, he offered some to us too. Oh my god, I love him already. Yeah, he was great. Um, and so before we started talking about his autism research, I asked him how he got into studying psychiatry. And first, he gave a quick summary about his academic background, but then he shared a pretty personal story with us. Here's Matt again. The thing that really tipped the balance is that um, I had a a dear friend at Stanford who had a psychotic break when I was in my first year in in medical school. And, um, you know, despite the best efforts of a, a really close group of friends, she ended up on the street. Was that down by Stanford? This actually happened just down the street in San Francisco. She was here up at the Hate, um, uh, sort of uh, lost to uh, to her friends and family. She got put in San Francisco General. Uh, myself and a small group of friends sort of um, were involved over the course of really almost a year trying to help sort of get her into treatment, keep her in treatment. That experience left Matt feeling pretty unhappy about mental health care. And it was a, um, a profoundly difficult and kind of disturbing experience to, to understand sort of how broken the mental health system was. A big problem, according to Matt, mostly boils down to how little we really know about the brain. And so what ended up happening with psychiatric disorders is that it's been following this recurring pattern. In history, whenever we as a society don't understand a disease, we tend to stigmatize it. And I do think that science not only is going to help elaborate mechanisms and find novel treatments, but I think it's really going to change the way that people think about mental illness, that it will help profoundly change the stigma that's associated with just the way that cancer no one talked about, you know, however, 50, 60 years ago. But for a lot of these things, the stigma is going away. And so is that not really happening yet with psychiatric illness? When things are, you know, mysterious, particularly when it has to do with behavior. I mean, epilepsy has already gotten a bit better, but, you know, people used to be sent away to epilepsy, you know, compounds. And, and, and to some degree, that, that happens now with, with psychiatric illness. Yeah, psychiatric illnesses are still pretty stigmatized. Um, for one, the brain is really complicated, and we actually might stigmatize them more than other diseases because, I mean, it's the brain. Everything about who you are as a human being is stored in your brain, like your personality, your social interactions, your sense of self. And on top of that, we just don't have the infrastructure to help everybody who needs it. 
You know, the, the being able to navigate a completely broken mental health system is nearly impossible. The way that it's done, you know, is people pick up the phone and start calling anyone they know to see if there's a way to get people into a profoundly limited number of psychiatric beds or see a profoundly limited number of professionals who are able to see very sick people. I mean, again, could you imagine, you know, if you had a kid with cancer that you couldn't go, you know, just to the door of the hospital and, and get help anywhere in the country that you would have to pick up and know someone who knows someone who knows someone in order to be able to get reasonable uh, help. It's, it's, uh, it's shameful. If you have a serious psychiatric problem, you, you are disadvantaged, you, you are underserved. I don't care if you have a billion dollars. And these are disorders that generally start very early, are lifelong, and are highly debilitating. So even compared to things that people might have in their, you know, in their heads, feel like, oh, that's got cancer's got to be worse than that. In fact, schizophrenia, autism, depression, anxiety disorders cumulatively uh, carry a much larger burden um, uh, for society, and that and that's in personal, you know, in, in personal terms, also in financial terms, enormous burden. Well, so unlike a diagnosis of heart or liver disease or even cancer, a doctor's ability to treat the patients or even to explain the basic biology of a psychiatric disease is limited by the nature of the organ in question, by the brain. Because it's so complicated. Yeah. But the reality is across the United States that, you know, that the ability to, to give sustained treatment, treatments that we know work to people with serious mental illness is, is extremely limited. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, about one in five adults in the U.S., so 44 million people, experience mental illness in any given year. But out of all of these patients, less than half received any mental health services for their conditions in the past year. Well, so for the ones that do get some treatment, is that adequate? Like, does that help? I think they do sometimes, depends on the disease probably, but there's still all of those people, around 22 million or so, who don't get any help at all. And partly because we don't have the resources to help these people, a lot of the time they end up in our criminal justice system. And according to Matt, The um, single largest provider of mental health care in the United States is the criminal justice system. Yeah, he actually said the largest psychiatric clinic in the United States is a jail. The largest psychiatry clinic in the United States is the Cook County Jail. Like, can you imagine saying that about cardiology, about oncology, about immunology? Oh, yeah, we take those patients who have angina and we send them to Cook County Jail because that's where they're going to get their treatment. It, it really reflects the marginalization of people with mental illness um, and, um, and, and the lack of investment. And so later, when Matt was doing his rotation in a child psychiatric ward, he met kids with genetic syndromes, intellectual disabilities, and a lot with autism. He specializes in autism now, right? Yeah. While he was at that clinic, he got really frustrated by how little they could tell families about these disorders. Like, they couldn't even give basic answers. And you see that, and, and having families come in, you know, diagnosis of autism, and not being able to tell them anything, you know, really anything. Why does it happen? What's going wrong here? What, you know, and it, so that part was really frustrating. Um, what are the symptoms of autism? Like if someone had to define autism, what's on that list? 
Well, doctors generally describe it as a spectrum of neurodevelopmental disorders, but in general, patients with autism are likely to have impaired social interaction, impaired verbal and nonverbal communication, their repetitive behaviors like hand flapping or spinning, and these patients often follow daily rituals like how they get dressed or what kind of foods they eat, and sometimes they're unusually fixated on things like dates or trains or even plastic bottles. When do you start noticing symptoms? Usually they start showing up in the first two years, and it has to be diagnosed before a child turns three. But within all of these symptoms, there's a lot of variability. It's very difficult um, when you're a clinician to not appreciate how tremendously heterogeneous the disorder is. So there's a larger context that everyone fits into, but individually. And now, you know, people often say, well, as a physician, if you've seen one kid with autism, you've seen one kid with autism. So if there's so many kinds of autism, how does Matt even study it? Like, what does his lab do? It actually made me think of, like, uh, the needle in the haystack analogy. They're trying to understand psychiatric diseases, like autism, by sifting through lots of tiny genetic differences, something that scientists couldn't really do at all until DNA sequencing technologies got a lot better. Which didn't really happen until kind of recently. Yeah, like in the last 15 years. So to, in order to understand what was going on with the patients, I started to read about this stuff, and it was mind-blowing, even compared to a few years earlier when I'd been in medical school. Like, the, it was the first glimpses really into um, beginning to understand at a more sophisticated level the, the, the real complexity of the human genome. And so, um, so I thought... I, this is that that you could. It, it, I had the sense that if we could understand, you could get to a level of resolution that you could see a change in the genome that was leading to complex behavioral change. That that might be a model to understand psychiatric disorders. So they're looking for changes in the genome in the DNA that's causing the disorder. And so he thought maybe he could find hints about you know what causes autism spectrum disorders. And then maybe how to treat them too. Yeah. But how do you even start? Well, one way to do it, the kind of old-fashioned way, is to start with any patient with autism and look really closely at their chromosomes, at all their DNA, under a microscope. And then you might be able to spot abnormalities in the structure of the chromosomes. Like, you can just see where spots on the chromosome look funny? Yeah, it's pretty cool, actually. So chromosomes have really recognizable patterns, so it's pretty easy to see if there's a section of DNA missing, or maybe there's something that looked like it got flipped around, something like that. And then you can zoom into that region and hopefully identify a broken or deleted gene. Okay. And then what you can do is instead of screening through thousands of unrelated patients with autism, you can study families in places where closely related individuals are marrying and having children. They're called inbred families. And so specifically, they're trying to find inbred families that also have high rates of autism. Um, we've done a lot of work for a long time trying to discover genes for autism in uh, in inbred families in the Middle East, and and um, because they provide uh, an awful lot of statistical power with very small numbers of people to be able to identify genes that are causing an observed problem. So, like, let's let's call this inbred family family A, and in this family there are lots of cousins. And six of those cousins are presenting with symptoms of autism. They have a clinical diagnosis of autism. Okay. So genetically, because there's a lot of intermarrying going on in this big family, those six cousins from family A are likely sharing the exact same genetic mutation that's causing their autism. 
So now we'll call this mutation number one, affecting one specific gene. And so, okay, now imagine just picking six autistic patients at random from the entire global population. The second you start looking outside of a single inbred population, you're way more likely to run into lots of different genetic causes. Lots of different mutations. Yeah, and so now you have one kid with mutation number one, one kid with mutation number seven, another with number 55, and so on and so on. And it becomes a lot more difficult for the geneticist to figure out whether or not this mutation is meaningful. Whether or not it's actually the cause of the disease. Yeah. And it always struck me that the disorder was so heterogeneous that you, that you really needed to be thinking about sort of finding one thing in a small group of people or in one person, as opposed to that the minute that you expand it to large populations, that you were going to run into trouble. Okay, I think I get it. So he realized at some point that it was basically going to be impossible to try to look at everything all at once, at all possible causes of autism. Yeah. And he'd be more likely to learn something about autism if he focused on one rare mutation, even if it's only linked to 1% of all autism cases. Yeah, specifically he was looking for a kind of mutation called a homozygous loss of function mutation. Sorry, what's a homozygous loss of function mutation? So you have two copies of every gene, one from your mom and one from your dad. Homozygous mutation means that both copies of the gene are affected, and the loss of function means that both copies are broken. Coming from both the mother and the father uh, in inbred families and results in, in the loss of the protein, so it kills the protein. So those are called homozygous loss of function mutations. So normally, if you had just one broken copy, that would be okay because you can make do with the other one. But in these families, the same broken gene is popping up again and again and again, and so you're more likely to get two broken copies of the gene, and in that case, you're going to have an effect. So, so going back to that needle in a haystack, it's like you're, you're just hiding a lot more of the same needle in the same haystack. It's going to be a lot easier to find a needle. Yeah, exactly. And then once they start zeroing in on individual genes, now they can figure out what these genes are doing. What have they found so far? Well, they're chasing some really interesting leads. One example is that Matt's lab actually collaborates with a fish lab to test one of these early candidate mutations. A fish lab? Yeah, it's a zebra fish lab. There's little fish. It's a great model organism. But it's a, it's a fish. I feel like I'm pretty different from a fish. Sure, okay, but so zebra fish are also vertebrates. They have a backbone, just like humans. And they're actually pretty similar at the level of DNA and proteins. Okay, so go back. What did they find in the fish lab? Well, they already knew that a gene called contactin-associated protein 2 was linked to autism in patients, both from their work and work in another lab looking at inbred populations. And so they wanted to know what happens to the fish when you delete this gene. What? What's it called? It's contactin-associated protein 2, but it's also nicknamed catnap 2. Are they sleepy fish? Actually, it's kind of ironic because one of the main traits or phenotypes is that these fish sleep less. They're hyperactive at night when they're missing the catnap gene. Hmm. And did they find anything else? Well, yeah, so the fish are kind of messed up. Like, okay, some of their neurons, their brain cells don't end up in the right place during development, and they'll have little fish seizures. But these traits don't sound exactly like autism? No, but Matt wasn't necessarily looking for that. Um, you know, I'm a geneticist, so I really believe in letting the genetic model tell you what the phenotype is. So we didn't, like, you know, look for social disability in the fish. We just looked to see what the mutation did. And they found something. We found a, a highly reproducible, measurable phenotype. 
uh, phenotypes a trait. Yeah, so basically, once you can connect the dots between a mutated gene and some change in the behavior linked to that mutation, once you understand the, the cause and effect, you can learn something about the interaction between the mutation and the drug, even if it doesn't look like an autistic fish. In this case, he and his collaborators used one specific behavior, one really obvious phenotype, to test hundreds of drugs. What was the behavior? The catnap mutant fish are hyperactive at night, so... So they, so they wanted to see if any of the drugs could treat hyperactivity or make the fish move less at night? Yeah, it's a pretty easy way to screen through lots of drugs really quickly. But how do you even do that? Wouldn't you need, like, an army of undergrad researchers just watching zebrafish all day? No, so, okay, the setup is actually pretty cool. It's like they have dozens of tiny swimming pools with one zebrafish in each individual tiny pool, and then there are these cameras overhead that keep track of how the fish are moving. Like if they're moving too much at night or not. Yeah, and then these computers can do the rest of the work for you. They can track the movement and score the fish, like, you know, this fish moved a lot, or this fish was pretty calm. So we use that to see what did the fish look like, and then was there anything, any of the compounds that looked like they would rescue the autism phenotype? What does he mean by rescue the autism phenotype? It's kind of confusing language, but it basically means that he was looking for drugs that would rescue the fish or restore their behavior to normal levels. Scientists talk like that a lot. Got it. Yeah, and so they were screening through these compounds, and for a while they didn't see anything. But then a handful of drugs could make the fish calm down. What are the drugs that worked? Well... And so, um, the lo and behold, the postdoc at the time, now junior faculty at Yale, walked in and said... We, we think that they're glutamate problems from, but, but all the rescue is with uh, estrogen compounds. Four out of the top 10 drugs that reversed or rescued this hyperactive phenotype were similar to estrogen. It's like, wow, estrogen. <laughs> is that unexpected? It has to do with something that's perplexed psychiatrists for a while. So, a lot more boys develop autism and autism spectrum disorders than girls. So, you know, the thing is, one of the most striking observations in autism is the four or five to one prevalence excess in males. And so, estrogen is interesting because... Because women have more estrogen than males. And so, maybe this difference in autism prevalence between girls and boys was... Was because something about the estrogen was helping girls. Yeah. And there's always been this interest about what about sexual dimorphism leads to the, you know, to what looks like a protective factor in females. Okay, that's pretty awesome. Like maybe it's protecting them. Yeah, but this is only this is this is just one study, and a lot more research has to happen before anything else can come out of this. You mean like treating kids with estrogen? Yeah, there's no way we can just start giving kids estrogen because we think it might help protect them against autism. Okay, I feel like it's important we say that. Um, but I mean, it's it's a cool science story either way. Um, but if you back up for a second, do they even know why the estrogen worked? Actually, no. I mean, they have some ideas, but nobody really knows. The interesting thing is that it doesn't automatically tell you what the sexual dimorphism is, but I think it is sort of at least another thread to pull on to ask about how estrogen activity in developing male versus female brain, not likely to be just a consequence of level, but more likely to be how estrogen is used in developing male and female brain differently, potentially, um, that, that that now is, you know, one of our 
um, collaborators here and then back at Yale are, you know, are really digging into that. Okay, so are there other examples of this? Like, is catnap their only lead? Well, Matt said that there might be a handful of other inherited mutations. He actually told us about a second mutation he helped identify in these families that causes low levels of specific amino acids, which seem to be leading to autism and seizures. And so now he's working with another lab to see if supplementing those amino acids in kids born with this mutation can alleviate some of the symptoms. So estrogen might have nothing to do with this mutation. Exactly, which is why we can't necessarily say that estrogen is a cure-all for autism. Hmm. Okay, so can't we just keep doing this? Like, keep looking for other mutations in inbred families and keep developing treatments that target each different mutation one at a time? Yeah, theoretically, this would be a straightforward process, but it turns out it was a lot more difficult than they thought it would be. So one of the interesting things that we found is that we've been doing this for almost 20 years, and the number of times that we have identified a genetic mutation that's homozygous is almost never. We see them very infrequently in, in autism alone. So what does that mean? That there are no other genes linked to autism? No, I mean, okay, so scientists definitely think that the environment could also be playing a role, and that's a whole other topic we don't have time to get into here. But there are also other genetic causes. So, okay, so far, we've only been talking about this one kind of mutation, a homozygous loss-of-function mutation. But just because we couldn't find other inherited mutations using the traditional approaches doesn't mean that there aren't other genes that are linked to autism. How can there be other genetic causes if it doesn't seem like it's being passed down? It means that the mutations must be happening spontaneously. Just like poof? Yeah, pretty much. Um, So basically, if you look for mutations in a child that aren't present in either of the parents, you find something like 80 brand new mutations in the whole genome. So this means that they happen spontaneously, either in the mom's egg or the dad's sperm, or maybe early on in the developing embryo. Geneticists call these de novo mutations. New mutations? Yep. Wow. I guess, isn't 80 mutations kind of a lot? Well, usually they're harmless, but every once in a while, one of these de novo mutations can break a really important gene. Ah, okay. So then let's say there's a family where the kid has autism, but neither of the parents do, and so you then suspect it's caused by one of these de novo mutations, not inherited. How do you, how do you find it? Well, you find as many families with suspected de novo mutations as possible, like thousands of families. So then you might be able to say that there's a pretty good chance that those mutations are actually causing autism? Yeah, I mean, so the power of this method is that when you combine thousands of these families, you start finding specific mutations that pop up more than once. It's like, you know, it's like, does this person have a de novo mutation? Yes. Where does it land? Here. And then we do the next person. Do they have a de novo mutation that influences function, yes or no, and where does it land? And so scientists are starting to converge on a reproducible list of de novo mutations linked to autism. So so the top 30 or so, they've been found by multiple labs around the world. We understand the mutation frequency in the normal genome. We understand how rare an observation it is to see a de novo mutation landing in the same spot more than once. So it's the really the recurrence of de novo mutation at a given spot that gives you enormous statistical power because it's such an unusual event. So why weren't we just doing this before? I mean, it seems like this method is easier. Because of sequencing, 
In the early 2000s, scientists announced that they had sequenced the human genome. And now, it's so much easier to compare DNA sequences from lots of different people, which makes it easier to spot when there's a meaningful difference. So that shift was really important um, around 2001. Um, we, you know, we went very quickly from just using a microscope to try to find broken chromosomes, you know, um, uh, gross chromosomal abnormalities, and then we spent, you know, my PhD was five years to map a single chromosomal abnormality, and it ended right at 2001 when the genome was sequenced. And, you know, like a week after I got my PhD, you could do the exact same experiment in like a month, you know, maybe two months if you were slow in the lab. Back then, they didn't even know the basic framework of the genome, so that was your whole project. Because we were creating the map, and that took an enormous amount of time. But once there were, you know, once you knew what the underlying um, uh, sequence and organization was, then then mapping things became much easier. As soon as we developed the tools to be able to look for de novo mutation broadly across the genome, then you know the field completely opened up. And now we're at the level of talking about individual molecules, molecular processes, exactly what, you know, I, we sort of longed for, aspired to when I was a resident, because I figured that's the path forward to being able to be, you know, to tell patients, this is what's going wrong, and this is the treatments that we're developing, and this is the new therapy. And now that scientists have this list of genes strongly associated with autism, they can try to figure out if those very different mutations have something in common. And so the question was, could we use the genes to define whether or not there was a particular spatial, temporal, or developmental convergence in autism? So less focused on what, and more focused on when and where. And they found something. They discovered that these top 10 or so mutations linked to autism all pointed them towards a very specific time window in fetal development we found that really surprising convergence in mid-fetal development, so mid-gestation in human brain. This is about halfway through a pregnancy. And not only that, the mutations pointed towards a specific kind of brain cell. So now that they found this convergence during fetal development, what, is, what does that mean? Well, now they know a lot more about when and where things are going wrong in fetal development. So maybe scientists can start focusing on what these genes are doing normally, and then how we can try to intervene clinically. In order to answer these questions, we use model organisms like zebrafish to study what's happening when the genes are broken, because we can't study the biological mechanisms in humans yet. And that's where Matt State's collaborations come into play. I mean, we walked in the door three years ago, and I can't even count the number of collaborations that we have ongoing right now in developmental, computational, stem cell, you know, we're doing mouse, zebrafish. It, it, the proliferation of um, uh, these kinds of connections here at UCSF, it's sort of what UCSF, you know, is built to do. Small labs, you know, people are really interested in the application of basic science to, to human problems and particularly, um, you know, incredible openness across departments here to psychiatric issues. I mean, in many places, neurology and psychiatry don't even talk to each other. And here, you know, you go around the table with our junior investigators, it's impossible to tell who's in what department. You know, it's really exciting. So it seems like they're getting a little bit closer to that point where they have the ability or tools to treat psychiatric illnesses based on what the genetics can tell them. Right. And so maybe psychiatry is catching up to other fields where we can actually treat patients by understanding more about the biology behind their conditions. 
we have a long way to go. And it, and it is it is the reason both that, you know, we, we've got to be always striving to do better right now, uh, you know, in terms of providing outstanding patient care, but also um, to, to recognize how important it is that we move forward with basic science. And now, Matt State is working closely with a new autism clinic at UCSF to try to bring this basic science closer to the patients. Here at, at uh, UCSF, we have a wonderful new autism clinic um, because, you know, there, I, I think that connection, I mean, it's the reason that the lab exists. All, you know, this is basic science all in the service of trying to do something that's going to, you know, improve the lives of children and families with autism. And when you see people who are, you know, uh, have the syndrome and see how families are working through that, surviving it, struggling with it or whatever, I, I think there's no more powerful motivator to get back in the lab and, you know, and really keep your priorities straight. This episode was written and produced by Meryl Horn, Ryan Jones, and myself, Sam and Kona Esselman, with editing help from the rest of our team. Visit our website, carrytheoneradio.com, for more information and more science episodes. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay curious. Special thanks to Dr. Matt State. <laughs> so corny. I'm <laughs> like 12. <laughs> okay. That's the outro right there. <laughs>